The Bible has a lot to say about the end times, and Israel is always at the center of God's plan. However, Islam has its own apocalyptic narrative. Our guest today, John Harrigan, draws upon his personal experience and theological expertise to help us understand what is fueling the anti-Zionist and anti-Semitic jihad amongst the Arab nations in the Middle East. We're also joined by First Fruits of Zion's Director of Education, D. Thomas Lancaster. Put your hand in mine together. We will walk in harmony. Let me introduce you to my teacher, the rabbi from the Galilee. You're listening to Messiah Podcast, where Jesus is Jewish, and that changes everything. Messiah Podcast is a production of First Fruits of Zion. Well, welcome back to Messiah Podcast. We are privileged to have John Harrigan here from the Apocalyptic Gospel Podcast, and we have D. Thomas Lancaster, author of Restoration, the senior educator here at First Fruits of Zion here on the podcast today. Welcome to both of you. Thanks. Great. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. John, it's nice to meet you. Likewise. You've been on Messiah Podcast before. First of all, what's the Apocalyptic Gospel Podcast? And second of all, how come there's no more Apocalyptic Gospel Podcast? Like, justify this decision. <laughs> right. The Apocalyptic Gospel Podcast is just uh, me and two friends of mine. We've been friends for about 15 years, and we do different stuff. So I'm overseas. Bill is uh, a pastor in California, and Josh is a campus minister in Texas. And uh, But we're all on kind of the same page as far as yeah. what we've tracked through the last uh, 15 years uh, together and historical studies in Second Temple Judaism. And as far as why we're, we finished after four seasons. Um, it's mostly just logistics. All three of us um, have a lot going on. And so logistics of getting our three lives on the same page and preparing and uh, getting it recorded and produced. Uh, who knows, maybe down the road, but for now, for now, we, we decided that uh, we'll put it on pause for a bit. Well, yeah, it seems like you've kind of reached a point where why talk about the apocalypse when you can live through it? That's right. It is It is happening right now. <laughs> All right. So as far as what's going on today, I wanted to get your perspective because you work in the Middle East. I think we can say that. You've, you, you know a lot of Muslims and you're familiar with uh, the worldview there. One thing that's happening now that's just boggling my mind is you have um, all of these people here in the West, you know, just marching for Palestine. I don't know that much about Hamas or about um, Islam, but I get the impression that if they could, they would just absolutely murder the heck out of every single one of these like social justice warriors. You know what I mean? I, I, I just had a, it, you know, it occurred to me in the form of a joke. It's like a Jew, a priest and a Muslim walk into a bar. It's kind of like, you know, a progressive liberal, uh, a Muslim terrorist right. and an evangelical pastor walk into a bar. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. Like well, what's going on here? You know, I'm in Egypt a few years ago. There's a Lebanese uh, band that came in and they played right next to us on the Nile River under the bridge. And there's, you know, whatever, 3000 people that came to this concert and uh, the Lebanese band. There are a few of them that were gay. And so in this crowd, you know, that happened one night, the government came back through and the government in Egypt isn't even radical. Right. Right. The government has cracked down on the radicals like 50,000 yeah. people have disappeared. Most of them are Muslim Brotherhood, which is what Hamas is. The Hamas wow. is just the Muslim Brotherhood. Yeah. Hamas is the military arm of the Muslim Brotherhood. But there's still the, the government's still conservative enough that they went through all the social media and anybody who had a gay flag, a pride flag, they went and arrested all of them and put them in jail. Wow. So even though it's not radical, the conservative Muslim culture is still, there's no room for Western liberal, liberal progressive. Uh, none of them would make it in the Arab world. No, nowhere in the Middle East. 
nowhere in the Middle East, except for except for Israel, <laughs> except for Israel. <laughs> right? Except for Israel, and you know, for me, the explanation of that is simply uh, ignorance that plays out towards a common enemy. In a normal world, Hamas and Iran would kill each other immediately. They're they're, they're arch enemies, Mm -hmm. Shiite and Sunni Muslim. They're both radicals. Mm -hmm. They would immediately kill each other, but because of a common hatred for Israel, they support each other. And so there's this, you know, leftist ideology in the West that is based on you know, a derivative of Marxism that says the entire world is just about the oppressed and the oppressor socioeconomically, and therefore they frame Israel and and the Palestinians in that kind of leftist Marxist uh, worldview. It's the same, you know, I'm Irish-American. It's the same with the Irish and British. It's why you know, the Irish government is the most anti-Semitic in, in Europe is because it frames itself as a thousand years of oppression by the British. Mm-hmm. It's projected on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's a kind of coarse, blunt, strange projection of this kind of leftist Marxist ideology, which results in a hatred towards the oppressor, which is Israel. So that has nothing to do with Islamic theology or the Islamic redemptive narrative or the embedded anti-Semitism in the Quran, particularly within the Medina phase, and then later encoded within the Hadith. Those two worlds have nothing in common, which is evident by Western leftists being killed at the music festival, the Supernova music festival, and just living in the Arab world. They don't get along at all, but they get along ideologically from a distance simply because of a common hatred for Israel that plays out from their two different worldviews, I think. Wow. Okay, so Jacob made the point that these two make a strange partnership, to use the the crass metaphor, strange bedfellows, which is just – when we're talking about the progressive left, I think it's just – strange bedfellows is just too ironic of a term to use. But – we add to that a menage a trois of uh, evangelicals who now are jumping onto this saying, hey, we too, we too are social justice warriors. We too share the same concern. And this is a reversal. Traditionally, the evangelical church that I grew up in, we just took that dispensational view of being pro-Israel, you know, as self-evident from our reading of the scriptures. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's like, my father, an evangelical pastor, uh, back in uh, he, he passed away in 2020. But my sister was going through his through, through his files, and she found a letter to the editor of Reader's Digest that he wrote in 1947, defending the Jewish people and the claim for the. Uh, the at that time, things had not even gone to the UN uh, in the whether or not uh, this this partition plan should go through or not, and it was a hot issue going back and forth. And so, even then, in mm-hmm. January 1947, he was supporting the Jewish homeland and supporting the formation of uh, a Jewish state with Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel. So, I'm just saying that's what this, the world I grew up in. But I'm looking around and saying, okay, I'm 55 years old. You know what? What is what does the evangelical church look like when this the generation after me are the ones that are occupying uh, positions of leadership? Yeah, the shift in the United States has corresponded to the shift away from dispensationalism. Mm-hmm. So dispensationalism, uh, as warped as it is, at least it has within the theological system a place for Jewish election and calling, even if it is a secondary plan of salvation. Either way, the Jews still have a role within that theological system. It, a second temple Jew would like listen to a dispensationalist. And, you know, yeah, I say yeah. it's, it makes a similar sound. It's just completely out of tune. But at least it's recognizable to a second temple Jew. Um, yeah. But as, as dispensationalism has increasingly been marginalized, which really happened in the 80s and 90s, after kind of the rise of evangelical scholarship, the neo-evangelical movement that came into play in the 60s and 70s, 
after that started to kind of play out, then the base of American evangelicalism moved from dispensationalist thought to reform thought. And once reform thought became the base of the evangelical movement, then you started to have a real shift in sentiment away from Israel and support of the Jewish people towards kind of reformed ideology, which doesn't have a place for that. Dispensationalism has a place even if it's a little odd, but reform theology doesn't have a place at all. So then you start having in the, in the late nineties, early two thousands, you start having real kind of manifestations of that reform theology within the evangelical playing field and Christ at the checkpoint and Bill Hybels and all of that stuff going on. Uh, And all of that started kind of teaming up with the main ideological distribution uh, centers in the Middle East, Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary, Cairo Evangelical Theological Seminary, uh, Bible Bethlehem College. And so you started having a lot of interplay between them kind of behind the doors and a pushing of a Palestinian narrative, which is simply based on classical reformed uh, theology, which is a lot of, you know, Roman narrative plays in. Wow. Wow. What you just said just kind of explained that explained a lot, like a lot of stuff clicked into place in my brain. That makes a lot of sense. I've been, I mean, look, I've been in Messianic Judaism now since 1990 two or something like that. I've been, I've not been in the church. I wasn't there for the, for that shift, for that transition. So I'm, I'm remembering a church that probably doesn't really exist anymore. Says I've been in the synagogue a long time. Uh, So, wow. Yeah. Dispensationalism, it's still around, uh, particularly within more fundamentalist circles in, for example, the assemblies of God and, and Baptist circles, Uh, But dispensationalism has become very marginalized. And in the academy, it's not allowed. It's getting more and more marginalized, the whole two plans of salvation, as realized eschatology is being brought into the dispensational circles through the progressive dispensational movement. Uh, It makes it increasingly difficult. And really, the only answer is historical studies in which apocalyptic thought is embraced, which, you know, out of kind of post-Holocaust Jewish-Christian dialogue, and you get J.C. Becker and the the embrace of apocalypticism progressively after World War II, historical studies, in my mind, is now the kind of answer to reclaiming that Second Temple Jewish apocalyptic view, which holds Jewish election as a presumed reality. Uh, And so the more that that native Second Temple worldview is embraced— at an academic level, and then that trickles down to the popular level, then you're going to have a wider acceptance of Jewish election within uh, the kind of body of Christ in, in evangelicalism. Yeah, yeah. You know, I went to hear a debate, my colleagues and I went to hear a debate between Mark Kinzer and N.T. Wright. And, that um, was a great debate. Oh, so you heard it. Okay, <laughs> great. Yeah, yeah it, it, it was a great at debate. At Samford. It was at Samford. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, um, you know, I remember sitting there thinking, you know, it's like uh, Rabbi Kinzer is, you know, of course, he's just Rabbi Kinzer and he's this, you know, East Coast Jew, you know, he's like, he's he's up there like Woody Allen, you know, like try, try, <laughs> trying to occupy this theolo- this very complex, nuanced theological situation. And, and then N.T. Wright starts to talk. You know, and as soon as he starts to talk with his deep voice and and that cultured British accent, is like the debate's over. It doesn't matter what he says <laughs> right. or, or, yeah. or, or, or what Rabbi Kinzer says. At this point, you just want to believe this guy because he has the he's got a British accent for crying out loud. And then you add on to that British imperialism. Right, right. And then you add on to that. This realized eschatology, this universalism, how Christ has broadened the narrow, you know, in, in, to to embrace all humanity. And it's just like, it just, it does sound so good. You know, it just kind of like. It would be, it would be yeah. great if it was true. You know, it's not like, I mean, I'm a Gentile. It's not like I'm pro-Jewish because I'm my, my people or my upbringing right, right, right. is pro-Jewish. It's just because God said so. It's just in the Bible. And so like, I obey it as an Irish American Gentile. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's the only reason. Yeah, Other people do not. 
<laughs> but that was a great debate. It was a great debate because it was one of the first times I've ever seen N.T. Wright uh, shaken, a little bit shaken. Nice. Because, yeah. you know, Do- Dr. Kinzer was just like, what you're saying means that I can't be a Jew. Right. A believer as a Jew, what you're saying. And, it, you know, it was obvious N.T. Wright hadn't read any of Kinzer's yes, stuff. It was, and was completely ignorant. Obvious. He had just shown up and he was out of his league. And so you could tell by the end, you know, Tom was kind of on his back feet a little bit. But uh, Tom's not going to change his ideas at all. So another generational rise up, which has happened for the last, you know, four generations in New Testament studies where one generation after another comes with this real strong response to Jewish apocalypticism. Now we've figured it out. Now we have an answer to the problem of Jewish apocalyptic thought, and we have all the answers, you know. So the, the overall trajectory of New Testament studies and historical studies continues to march in the right direction. Uh, but you do have guys like Tom and Richard Bauckham and G.K. Beale and on and on and on, Tom Snyder, who continue to kind of beat the same drum of pushback. And the more conservative and the more evangelical the scholar is, the more pushback against Jewish apocalyptic there is, hmm. which is strange. It's just the reality of it. I wish it, I wish it wasn't so. It's but a little counterintuitive. It is, yeah. is counterintuitive. Huh. So – um. I want to talk about realized eschatology because this is, and this is sort of your wheelhouse as I understand it. Because I've read your whole book on the subject. What does the New Testament say about the Jewish people in the land of Israel? I mean, what is, what is realized eschatology and why is it wrong? I mean, just sort of blank check here. Yeah, sure. So realized eschatology is more of a modern uh, phrase that's been used in New Testament studies for the last hundred years uh, as a response to historical studies and uh, studying Second Temple Judaism starting in the late uh, 1800s, early 1900s. And uh, just a recognition that the literature during the time of the New Testament paints a, a fairly clear and coherent worldview about God, history, and the future, and the Jewish people, and the Gentiles of the world. And, uh, and so historical studies said, look, uh, when, when phrases in the New Testament that are used that aren't defined, like the kingdom of God, the resurrection of the dead, the last day, Gehenna, uh, son of man, when those are used, they're not used with definition. They're just used as though everybody understands what they're meaning. If you look at the literature surrounding uh, during the time of the New Testament, they're using the same phrases in the same ways, and it's an apocalyptic worldview, meaning it it's, leads to a cataclysmic end that radically reverses history and creates a two-age dualism between this age and the age to come. So the New Testament uses all these phrases in the same way without redefinition, therefore, uh, it fits within that Second Temple Jewish uh, apocalyptic worldview. Realized eschatology was the response primarily of the English Academy saying, yes, Jesus understood that worldview, but he was fulfilling and realizing those future promises in himself, his ministry, and then the church uh, picked it up afterwards uh, through his uh, the motif of the body. Now, the idea that the Jewish scriptures are fulfilled in things that are not Jewish, that's gone back a long time. So fulfillment theology, you see it in the New Testament itself, you know, kind of a proto-Gnostic idea. But throughout the church, the scriptures, particularly of the prophetic literature of the Hebrew Bible, has been viewed as fulfilled in something other than Jewish tradition traditionally expects. And that's absolutely wild, by the way. It is really wild. Yeah. It's very, very strange to think of the Old Testament prophets saying Israel's going to come back to the land and to think this is talking about something other than, than the thing it's 
obviously definitely about. Well, it's it's a spiritualization, though. It's a spiritualization of the, I mean, if I was to argue uh, on behalf of the church that holds that view, they'd say, well, look, you know, these were types, shadows, uh, prefigurings of a greater uh, universal reality of the kingdom on earth that is uh, the revelation of godliness through Christ. That is, you know, so it's, it's all becomes these sort of ambiguous terms. For example, you go to Hebrews and Abraham is looking for a city that with foundations made by God. So it's like, well, that's clearly not the literal, you know, this sort of thing. You can kind of do this song and dance and pretty soon the land of Israel, it's not the land of Israel, it's the church. And uh, the Jewish people are not the, the, the people of Israel, rather those are the Christians in the church. And, and that's how you end up with that. And that's, I mean, it's, it's essentially replacement theology by any other name. Yeah, I mean, and that happens in two main waves throughout church history. You get a change in redemptive narrative or the story of uh, salvation and redemptive history changes from an apocalyptic Jewish narrative uh, during the time of the New Testament. And then after you get a Greek narrative and a Roman narrative. And in these two different storylines, the scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, those scriptures are fulfilled in different redemptive stories. And so the Greek narrative, the most well-known proponent of that is Origen of Alexandria. Mm -hmm. And in the catechetical school there, he developed the whole uh, spiritual system of interpretation in which the universe is split in two material and immaterial instead of the heavens and the earth. And the goal of redemptive history is to escape the material world, to go to an eternal, ethereal, immaterial existence. And this, you know, plays out of Plato and and all of the kind of aggregate of of Hellenistic uh, ideologues saying that the material world's bad existentially and the goal is to go to the immaterial world. So when this, when the Jewish scriptures were imported into this worldview, then all of the promises of the Tanakh find fulfillment in this immaterial Greek eschatology, this end game of the eternal float along in the clouds. And so Origen applied the spiritual hermeneutic to all of the Jewish scriptures to say there's a spiritual and a physical Mm -hmm. uh, interpretation of the scriptures. And therefore, everything that Israel understood was physical, but the physical is all carnal and dumb. So the spiritual interpretation, then you have a spiritual promised land, you have a spiritual people, you have a spiritual Davidic throne, you have a spiritual, et cetera, et cetera. And so all of the promises are fulfilled or realized in the spiritual end game in the eternal sing-along in the clouds. Oh, yeah. The Roman narrative fulfills all the Jewish scriptures in a different way. So instead of the eternal sing-along in the clouds, in the Roman narrative, for example, Eusebius of Caesarea, who's the court historian of Constantine, when he wrote the life of Constantine and oration and praise of Constantine, he said all of the Jewish scriptures, particularly the prophetic literature, is fulfilled in the rule of Constantine and the Pax Romana. Oh, wow. So Isaiah 2, Isaiah 60, Zechariah 9, he quotes these passages and says, All of the ancient oracles spoken in the Hebrew tongue are fulfilled in the rule of Constantine. And so this is a different kind of realized eschatology, saying that the Hebrew prophets, the promises about Israel and the Jewish people are fulfilled in a Gentile with a mortal body and in this age in a political entity. And then Augustine transferred that from the Roman Empire since it fell apart to the church. The Holy Roman Empire, which became, right. I mean, okay, so just hold that thought for a second. And and then let's just push on this button for a moment of it. How how is that different than uh, Christian nationalism? Well, it's just a long, it's a long theological tradition that still plays out of that Roman narrative and Constantinianism, whether it's Charlemagne, Innocent III, the Munster Rebellion, the Fifth Monarchy Men, uh, you know, the Taiping Rebellion, Reconstructionism, Dominionism, whatever form or shape it takes, it's still the same game that it's a non-apocalyptic, progressive redemption of creation through Gentiles 
in this age without an apocalyptic change. So, and the mechanism is the manifestation of divine sovereignty through whatever that entity is. And so it's the same kind of theological game going on over and over and over and over. Within America, it's particularly in our ethnic context uh, that, but you have Christian nationalism in Russia, you got Christian nationalism in Armenia, you got Christian nationalism in all kinds, in Ethiopia, you got Christian nationalism in whatever country in which Gentiles are the dominant reality and they're playing out that God is redeeming and restoring everything through us and social and political devices. Through our little tiny political movement. Okay. Which right. is, you know, if that if that's real, that's awesome. I mean, if that's how it is, I'm down with that. But that's just not what the Bible, that's not how it plays out. Yeah. If if the day of the Lord wasn't prophesied in the Bible, then I wouldn't worry about it. If the resurrection of the dead, if the coming of the Messiah, if the age to come, if all of that wasn't part of the picture, then I would totally hop on the train and for the divine takeover and but that's just not yeah reality and that's not what god has spoken so that's how it goes what all these movements seem to be missing is the the reality of the jewish people as the people of god you know? yeah and the covenant frames all of those events so it's not like the prophetic tradition came first sinai came first oh, for sure. and the torah came first mm-hmm. so the covenant came first and then the meditation on it in the wisdom tradition literature, and then the prophetic projection of that covenant into the future with yep. the prophetic literature and yep. tradition. Yep. And then all of that comes to kind of climax in the second temple period when they're projecting all of those things to its ultimate end. And so this is the world that the New Testament functions out of. This is the world that Jesus and the apostles presumed as reality. It wasn't like there are, nobody was arguing about it. And this is the worldview that we need to recapture if we are serious about being New Testament believers and followers of Yeshua of Nazareth who embodied this worldview and stood as a representative of it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I, I I didn't mean to derail you there. Uh, you there there was a third. You said one, two, and 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 so we started with the 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 Greek solution, the Ro- and then we had the Roman solution. What's the third? Well, the third is the Jewish baseline narrative, and the Jewish narrative goes through you know throughout Jewish tradition is more or less apocalyptic. So Jews throughout history, the rabbinic tradition in the second and third century marginalized kind of the two age idea, kind of pushed it down because it. Uh, it was mixed with zealotry and and ended in 70 AD in the Bar Kokhba Rebellion. So Jewish tradition throughout history has become more and less apocalyptic and different groups within Judaism, you know, the ultra-Orthodox communities are generally very apocalyptic. The conservative and reformed Jewish communities today are not apocalyptic at all. So no, not at all. So you have the Jewish tradition, you have the Greek redemptive narrative and you have the Roman redemptive narrative. And those are mixed together in different forms and fashions throughout Christian tradition, particularly with Augustinianism combines the Greek and the Roman into this world, the church militant, which is the Roman narrative and the the other world after death, which is the church triumphant. And so the Greek and the Roman are kind of held together in tension. Different theological traditions emphasize one of those narratives more or less. Generally, the Lutheran evangelical tradition emphasizes the Greek, you know, the cross accomplishes the immaterial heavenly destiny, whereas the Reformed tradition out of Geneva emphasizes a utopian Christian society, which is the kingdom of God, like in Uh Geneva. Um, Dispensationalism, you know, takes those two, the Greek and uh, and Jewish narrative and binds them together. So you have a uh, two eternal redemptive programs: one for the Gentile, which is the immaterial, the Greek narrative; one for the Jew, the Jewish narrative. It wasn't based yeah. on historical studies, uh, but it was a it was kind of a grassroots, popular level attempt to try to reclaim the Jewish narrative. That's why anytime somebody is talking about Israel or the Jews. Everybody thinks it's dispensationalism, right? Because it's kind of the only option, unless you're in the academy, right? Uh-huh. And so, historical studies and kind of modern uh, academic studies has has generally pushed aside the Greek narrative, but has held to the Roman narrative. So that's what inaugurated eschatology or realized eschatology in the modern uh, academy is kind of a binding together of the Jewish narrative the not yet and the Roman narrative, the already, the manifestation of divine sovereignty. 
But all the already, the already is all the Jewish stuff. All the not yet's the universal stuff, like the day of the Lord, the resurrection, the new earth. <laughs> but okay. everything that's already is uh, is all the Jewish stuff. The Davidic throne, the kingdom of God, the the land, the temple, Torah observance, all of that. that all that stuff's been realized. So what happens when these worldviews then smash up against the reality of Jewish claim to the land of Israel, to uh, to a homeland in Palestine? the uh, Zionism, the modern Aliyah movement, the formation of the state of Israel. What happens when we intersect those controversial world situations with these theological perspectives? Well, most people, I think, don't uh, appreciate what is the unique calling of the Jews in the world. You'll get some commentary saying, you know, God has kind of a unique relationship with Israel, the Jews, but what's the what's the concrete reality? And so Romans 3 is helpful uh, for me when Paul says, what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? He says, much in every way, firstly, protone. So different translations will say to begin with or chiefly or first of all. And the question is, is it first in number, like a list, or is it first in importance? And I would say it's first, he means first in importance. Like there's lots of roles that the Jewish people play in redemptive history, but of first importance is that they are stewards of the oracles of God. Hmm. And this is how Paul frames Jewish election and the purpose of divine calling on the Jewish people according to the flesh is that they are ordained with stewarding the oracles of God in this age and then administrating those oracles in the age to come. So like Paul says in Romans 2, glory, honor, and immortality will be for the to the Jew first and then the Gentiles. So the administration of the hope of the day of God, the resurrection, eternal life, the age to come, that will be all administrated to the Jew first and then the Gentile. But the, the role and calling of the Jew in this age is chiefly or firstly the stewarding of the oracles of God, which include not just the scriptures, the, script, the scriptures at the center of it, but the scriptures and keeping the scriptures is all bound up with the city, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the temple, the temple service, like he says later in Romans 9, and the land. The land is integral to the whole relationship between God and Israel from Genesis 12. Go to the land, I will show you, and I will make yeah. you a great nation. Yeah. And then chapter yeah. 13, I'm going to give you this land. Genesis 15, I'm going to give you this land. Genesis 17, I'm going to give you this land. The land is the is the kind of container of the walking out and the keeping of the oracles. And so I think of the land like kind of like the milk jug. And if I ask my son, hey, hand me the milk, he's not going to like pour the milk into my hand. He's going to hand me the whole container. And so mm. stewarding the oracles of God, the land is like the container of Torah observance and keeping. And the goal is always to keep the oracles as fully as possible. Now, sometimes Jewish apostasy happens from the beginning, from Sinai, throughout, you know, judges, the times of the kings, it leads to divine discipline with the exile. Mm -hmm. None of that means that the calling and role of the Jews is lifted. It just means that God is trying to draw the Jewish people back to this unique relationship that centers chiefly around the stewarding of the oracles. So if Gentiles understood this, they would leave the Jews alone and just <laughs> let them do what they're called to do. But Gentiles haven't understood this. No. You know, like like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, if the, if the Gentiles had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If Pontius Pilate had understood, which he almost did, his wife had a dream, but if he really understood who the mm -hmm. Jewish people were, what the future of the world involved, what the calling of the Jews were in this age, he wouldn't have killed the guy if he understood that guy's coming in glory with fires and with fire and angels. Uh. If Titus had understood who the Jewish people were uh -huh. and what they were called and the future of the world, he would not have marched and sieged Jerusalem. 
if Hadrian had understood who the Jewish people were, he would not have marched. And I mean, Jerusalem was one in like 20 stops on his way through the uh, through the Middle East yeah. in 135 to put down the Bar Kokhba rebellion. But it if he had understood what was going on, he wouldn't have built a temple to Jupiter on the Temple Mount oh, sure. and then renamed the land. So in the same way throughout Gentile history, if Abdul Malik, who built the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the shrine, the Dome of the Rock Shrine, if he knew who the Jewish people were, what the scriptures said, which obviously Muhammad had never read the scriptures. He was illiterate. He just got oral tradition. If he had actually gone to school, this is why we have seminaries. If he had gone to school, if he had learned the scriptures, if he had read the prophetic tradition and he knew where things were going, he wouldn't have built that thing on the Temple Mount. He wouldn't have treated the Jewish people, though it was better under the early caliphates than in the Roman and Byzantine times. And likewise, the Crusaders, when they came in and kicked out all the Jews and Muslims out of the land, and then they built the, you know, the Crusader palace on the Temple Mount, and then the Knights Templar set up their headquarters in the Al-Aqsa Mosque, you know, for 150, 200 years. They, uh-huh. If they knew, they wouldn't have done that. It's a systematic ignorance of the Gentiles, of the calling and purpose of the Jews that has led to 2,000 years of oppression and mistreatment. And now here we are in the same situation. If Hamas knew the scriptures, Mm -hmm. if Muslims in the Middle East knew the scriptures, I talk to Muslims all the time, and they've never read the Torah in their minds. They kind of lump it all together. If they've, they've never read the Tanakh, they've never read the Injil, the New Testament, they have no idea what it means. And so mm-hmm. it always is an introduction to Muslims. Well, here, look, you can download this app on your phone. There's no longer snug, smuggling Bibles into the Middle East. You just download an app and you can start reading the Bible of the Jews and the Bible of the Christians. And you can actually know firsthand. And you get it all over the Internet, atheists and educated Muslims going, what is this Jew hatred that is rampant in the Muslim world? They're coming to terms with the reality of the situation through globalization and the Internet. It's a closed information bubble that Muslims have been trapped in for 1,400 years that that doesn't allow them to know what the scriptures say and what the calling of the Jewish people is. And if they knew, they would just leave the Jews alone. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. That's kind of my, sorry about the spiel, but that's kind of my perspective on it. (laughs) No, it was great. It was fantastic and a little tour through history. I I love it. But uh, I recently heard a John Piper sermon in which he he starts with the sort of a uh, biblical literalism of uh, from reform theology perspective. Always. And then he followed a different trajectory. He essentially said, well, look, here's the situation. Yeah, God promises the land of Israel to the people of Israel. But we know from Romans, and Paul tells us in Romans that not all Israel are Israel. You know, not it. And so who isn't Israel? Well, certain branches have been lopped off and the Gentile Christians have been grafted in Mm -hmm. in the place of these cut off branches. Right. The Jewish people, since they rejected Christ, they're no longer Israel and therefore no longer inheritors of the promises. But then he also adds, and plus they're under the curse of the law. Since they're under the covenant, they're under the curse of the law. And so then they uh, should be in exile outside of the land of Israel. And therefore, uh, we should be supporting Palestinian cause uh, and uh, anti-Zionist. That was a, a, a quick summary. And he, didn't, he said it in a much more eloquent way, but... Um, that's basically what he said. So we do get this pushback all over the church. That's kind of playing out of, of mostly Roman narratives. There's still some spiritualization from the Greek narrative in play in uh, reform theology. But Piper in particular, I don't want to go into to John. I appreciate John and his ministry within the church, but he is a, a diehard uh, reformed theologian, and so his mm-hmm. ideas are very destructive uh, in a lot of ways when he starts talking along those lines. The problem is, is that Piper's ignorant of Jewish apocalyptic tradition. Uh, he, he never addresses Second Temple Judaism. Yeah. 
within Second Temple Judaism, there's a strong remnant theology, mm-hmm. which comes out of the prophetic tradition. It's just a, an extrapolation of the prophetic tradition in which some Jews are apostate and some Jews are faithful. This is the the thrust of the prophetic literature. And so Paul's just picking that up in Romans, which then he says again at the beginning of chapter 11, he says it real clearly that he is proof himself that not all Jews are apostate. And it was the same in Elijah's day. But when Paul says in Romans 9 that not all Jews are Jews like their forefather Abraham, he's not saying that there's no longer ethnic distinctions or in the divine economy. He's just saying not all Jews have the faith of their forefather. There's a remnant within Israel that remains faithful. That's all he's saying in Romans 9. And so to extrapolate that to a radical redefinition of the underlying realities of the scriptures, you have to have very clear evidence that that's really what's being said. Meaning you have to have multiple witnesses. You just overturn the entire Bible, the whole eschatological thrust as well. I mean, but and and the covenant promises to Israel, right? you, you just drop them all over the floor. Right. So if that's true, which it could be, I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying Paul should be talking about it, not verse here and verse there. It should be chapter upon chapter upon chapter. Yeah. John should be talking about it. Peter should be talking about it. Everybody should be talking about it clearly like the reform guys. They're all saying it very clearly. They're laying it out to to more or less, you know, based on historical reality. Most of it's just based on reformed, you know, secondary literature tradition. But mm-hmm. they're saying it very clearly and laying it out. If that's what's happening in the early church and the apostolic tradition, then they should you should see the same thing clearly laying out, this is what you believed. This is what Jews believed. I'm saying something totally different. And then they would give analogies. They would repeat. They would rehearse. None of that's there. It's just not there at all. At least, at the very least, the dispensationalists were like, we're going to take the Old Testament prophecies seriously. And we're going to say, look, you know, the Jewish people are continue to be God's people. And all of those, all of those prophecies are going to be fulfilled in a literal sense. And um, I feel like that was a great step for the evangelical church to take. And I sort of wondered, you know, if you personally, John Harrigan, where would you say is your greatest point of departure from like sort of classical dispensationalism? Because they got a lot of things right, didn't they? Or did they not? I mean, explain it to yeah. you. Yeah, there's a lot that was great in dispensationalism. Uh, my point of departure is there's no Gentile redemptive plan. So what makes dispensationalism, the synchronon of dispensationalism, as Charles Ryrie wrote in Dispensationalism Today, I forget that was like 65 that that got published. But his first chapter is is devoted to saying this is what dispensationalism is, this is what it's not. And what it is, what makes a dispensationalism a dispensationalist, is not the dividing up of history into different uh, dispensations Oh, I thought that's what it was. No, what makes it the synchronon is two redemptive programs, hmm. one yeah, for the right. Jew, one for the Gentile. And as those two redemptive programs interact together, the heavenly people in contrast to the earthly people, as yeah. those two divine programs interact together, that's what creates the dispensations. And so it starts with the Gentile program, you know, in the garden, and then it switches to the Jewish program with Abraham and on to Sinai. And then it pauses during the exile. Jesus offers the Jewish program, the kingdom of God to the Jewish people. They reject it. And so he postpones the kingdom. And then there's Pentecost and there's a quote, intercalation in which the Gentile program starts up. And then the pre-tribulational rapture is a stop to the Gentile program to restart the Jewish program. So it's the interaction of the of the two redemptive programs that creates the dispensations. And I would just say, throw away the whole Gentile program. That's just the old, you know, kind of Alexandrian uh, catechetical school approach with a spiritualistic hermeneutic and just go with the Jewish program. And then my second part uh, departure point would be base it in historical studies. So dispensationalism historically was a biblicist 
reality. Everything started with the Bible and ended with the Bible, which isn't bad. We want to be people of the scriptures. For sure. But because of what the Bible is and what the New Testament assumes about the definitions of the last day, the resurrection, the dead, the kingdom of God, Gehenna, and son of man, those phrases that aren't explained and they're not in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, then yeah. you have to go to historical sources and mm-hmm. for reference Absolutely. point. Absolutely. Not yeah. as a basis for understanding, but as a reference point to understand what they're talking about. And so in that context, my other major criticism of dispensationalism out of that two plans of salvation is the definition of the two peoples, the Israel and the church. And that mixes up the terminology that's used in Second Temple Judaism. Mm-hmm. So the yeah. church or the assembly within Second Temple Judaism is associated with remnant theology. And so the assembly is the remnant of the righteous that will endure the day of God and inherit the resurrection in the age to come. And so the assembly, the, the, the contrast, the opposite of the church or the assembly within Second Temple remnant theology is the apostate or the wicked. And so it's the righteous versus the wicked, the, the church, the assembly, and it's Israel versus the nations, the Gentiles. And so it's not Israel versus the assembly, the right, it's the righteous versus the wicked and Israel versus the nations that's in Paul's mind when he includes the Gentiles into the righteous, into the assembly or the remnant of the righteous. Yeah. Radical. Yeah. And so the the distinction, the, the contrasting between Israel and the church, it muddies the waters. That's not the contrast that's being used in the New Testament. It's the it's the church, the righteous assembly versus the apostate within Israel. And then Paul includes, well, the book of Acts, starting with with chapter 10, they include the Gentiles into that righteous assembly that will escape the wrath to come and, and inherit the resurrection and eternal life. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a big paradigm shift, for, I think, for a lot of people. That's like essential. That little talk should be essential to frame Romans, to frame your reading of Romans. For sure. Before you start. Yeah, absolutely. Before you even do Romans 1-1, we should have that conversation. Then we also need to have a conversation about Jewish identity and conversion and and so forth. That's amazing. Yeah, for sure. I, I think I remember talking about this eight or nine years ago. If you come away with Romans with the question, what do we do with all the Jews, then then you've completely missed the point. If you come away right. from Romans with the question of what, what, how in God's name are we, what are we going to do with these Gentiles that are coming alongside, then now you're on the right track, right? Right. Like that's, yeah. that's the question that the apostles were, were, were trying to answer, uh, um, creating an identity for people who are not Jewish, but who worship the God of Israel and came alongside the Jewish people. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was talking to Dan about this a little bit. You know, we have we have a Jewish apocalyptic worldview. I think we, it's safe to say that us at First Fruit Design and you there at the Apocalyptic um, Gospel Podcast, we share a, this apocalyptic, a Jewish apocalyptic view of the eschaton. However, there's um, there's a competing view of the eschaton, and I talked about this a little bit on a, on a previous episode of the Jeremiah over at the Brahm Center. Uh, Islam has its own eschaton right so islam has its own idea of what's going to happen there's, there's the mahdi is going to come and i guess jesus is going to come back and the uh, islam has its own view of what's going to go down in the end times but i i'm not sure that us here in the west have like a very clear idea of what they're aiming for or what they think is going to yeah, happen yeah 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 you know i mean just just to frame the question a little bit you know as jacob and i were preparing for this podcast we're we're kicking this back and forth and um and and i i suggested that you know uh, it's kind of like ragnarok yeah, uh, the church is looking for Armageddon. The the Jewish people are looking for Gog and Magog. Uh, so so what are what what is Islam looking looking towards? What what are what is it that they imagine that uh, they're going to accomplish through uh, you know establishing a world caliphate or whatever they're right. So not all Muslims are apocalyptic, but generally speaking, the more conservative they are, the more apocalyptic they are. Muhammad was very apocalyptic, and he picked it up from the rabbinic Judaism in Arabia at the time. And so, but there's no Jewish election. So it's just Arab 
apocalypticism. Yeah. It's kind of a raw universal. Uh, it's not even universalistic. It's still based in, in the Arab identity because God speaks Arabic. Arabic is the eternal language, the mother tongue of God, and therefore it's centered in, in, you know, everybody that comes to Mecca complains from Indonesia or wherever they complain of the racism within the Arab world <laughs> against non-Arabs because yeah. redemptive history is centered in Arabia, particularly in Mecca. And so God is Arab and everything kind of moves out from there. But Every worldview, every redemptive narrative has apocalypticism that's emphasized more or less within their adherence. So Islam's the same way where you have more or less apocalyptic Muslims uh, within different groups. And but the original within Islam was very uh, apocalyptic Arab apocalypticism, if you will. In the Western world, I feel like there's a sense in which these people are just, have just sort of integrated and it's like, whatever, you know, it's our religion and just everyone has a religion. You just pick one or whatever. Is it different in the Middle East? Like, is there, are, are, are people over there like hankering for some apocalypse? Like, cause, cause here every, everyone's just trying to maintain some kind of stability. Everyone's just, it seems like everyone's just hanging out. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not sure if, how, how to clarify this question. Is the dream of the caliphate still alive? Like, are they still trying to do this thing? That among among or, conservative, among conservative and orthodox Muslims, yes, uh, kind of ideologically driven Muslims. That uh, then you have more of a yearning for kind of the conclusion of uh, the Arab redemptive narrative. But a lot of Muslims in the West, they're in the West because they're you know, for different reasons, but it's not to restore the caliphate. Usually they're in the West to, you know, make more money. They're in the West because they're dis disillusioned with Islam. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, we have a lot of secular Christians too. You know, we have a, Same thing. Yeah, we have a lot of secular Jews, you know, you, you have, yep. you have secular Jews. They don't really believe, you know, reform and conservative. I'm sorry if you're from reform and conservative tradition, but reform and conservative, you'd you know, the reality is reforming conservative Judaism doesn't really believe the scriptures. It certainly doesn't believe in an apocalyptic nope. view of the scriptures. Don't, yeah. you don't mm -hmm. even really believe in the Torah itself, that the Torah is from Sinai. Yeah, by definition, right. they don't. That's just fundamental. Right. And and so in the church, you've got all sorts of liberal streams of, of Christianity who are just kind of hanging out, you know, enjoying the Western world and everybody picks a religion. Uh, but if you really are a devout Muslim, then yeah, you should absolutely be devoted to the principles of the, of uh, establishing the world caliphate. Pick up your sword, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But the the generation gap in the Middle East is so much wider than the generation gap in the West. Oh really? Oh, tell me about that. Uh, it's incredible. It is absolutely. I I almost never have a conversation with a Muslim over 40 that doesn't involve some comment about how wayward the youth are uh, yeah. because the youth, the youth all have cell phones and the youth are all, they're looking to Elon Musk and Bill Gates. They're looking to, <laughs> to, to Europe. They're seeing that outside of the Muslim world, people are going to space. They're making, you know, computers. They're, they're <laughs> flying. Like, is there not like an Iraqi space program? Yeah, right. The Muslim world produces oil and radical religion. That's what the Muslim <laughs> world does. So the youth, particularly in Saudi Arabia, it, it's, it's really mind boggling. The 16 to 24 year old age range in Saudi Arabia. I read a report. It came out about a year and a half ago that 48% of that age range in Saudi Arabia privately identified as atheist. They, of wow. course they still go to, they still go to mosque. They don't tell their family about that in Egypt. I think that age range identified privately is 15%. So it's not as bad in other Arab nations. Oh, okay. And once you get outside of that age range, you know, above 40, that drops down to like 2% or whatever. The disparity between the older generation and the younger generation in the Middle East, it's why, you know, MBS in Saudi Arabia, he's made such a radical turn because he's been globalized from a young age. He had, you know, Filipino nannies in the palace. He had interaction with the outside world. He, he recognizes he's got a lot of 
traditional forces pushing against him, but he's the man now, so he can do it. So immediately he opened up the theaters, women are driving, he's inviting in, you know, all the outside sports uh, stuff. Oh, sports and esports. Right. It's huge. And I had a, you know, we had a guy working with us in Egypt with our uh, language center and he went to uh, Saudi Arabia in Riyadh and uh, he texted me and he was like, man, there is a rave going. This is whatever, <laughs> a year ago. This is a year ago. He's like, there is a rave happening outside of Riyadh. And there's like 200,000 people. Basically, Riyadh had shut down for two to three days because of this massive rave in the desert. He was like, if I hadn't been here, nobody could have ever convinced me that this was true. Wow. But he's like, I'm seeing it with my own so eyes. Funny. It's unbelievable. So the generation gap, it's incredible. I'm seeing this really strange situation then where where in the West, we're saying, oh, the young generation, they're leaning this direction. And over in, uh, over, over in the Middle East, you're saying, well, these leftist progressive, uh, these, these leftist progressive liberals among, among the Muslim world, they're leaning away from this radicalism. So in, in the West, the young people are radicalizing and in, right. in, in the Middle East. Right. The, That's bizarre. Oh, man. <laughs> you, you have young <laughs> radical Muslims, too. You know? Oh, for sure. Yeah. People who can't get a girlfriend. In Iran, it seems like it's it's just under the surface. Like it's it just keeps boiling up. Uh, it, it's it, like like the regime is barely holding that animus under underneath this veneer of the old values. For sure, it's it's definitely evident the the generational divide within Iran, and uh, it does seem like Iran is going to start falling apart. Particularly. I mean, you have just such a wide disparity between the Ayatollahs and their, I mean, they're just holding on to 7th century Arabia with all their hearts and the oh, whole sure. younger generation and the, the anti-hijab movement. And even the, you have all of the support for Israel within Iran and particularly Iranians in the West as a response against the Ayatollahs. It's really it's a mind-boggling situation as it plays out in front of you. But that's going to be wild. It's it's happening in different ways. It's different. It's a different story in pretty much er, every Arab context. It's different in Egypt than it is in Saudi Arabia, than it is in Bahrain, than it is in UAE, than it is in Lebanon, than it is in Iraq, than it is in in Iran or in Libya. You know, each country is is different in how the how the narratives are colliding together and how modern uh, naturalism is is invading. That's the common reality: is is Western naturalism is is taking hold more and more in the Middle East. Well, how how do we bring the gospel into that context? Oh yeah, you should know that. Believe it and talk about it. There, you know, no other way forward. And the Jewish apocalypticism is one hundred percent at odds with naturalism. Um, it finds some overlap with Arab apocalypticism except the Arabs don't have Jewish election or atonement and sacrificial realities at all. Yeah. And then Christian theology, it, it has a lot of overlap with the sacrificial realities, the new Testament. Uh, but Jewish apocalyptic ideas are definitely, you know, you, you can't preach this stuff. in in a lot of the churches in the middle East and a lot of the churches in the middle East, Arab Christians will side with Muslims against Israel uh, sometimes for ideological reasons, other times for pragmatic reasons, just to be part of the club. Sure, and that's you. You can't underestimate being part of the club. Sure, going oh, yeah. along with the guys, you know, so that mm -hmm. you can get along in the neighborhood. And it's a tough neighborhood in the Middle East, so uh, that that happens a lot. Hmm. Well, let's say that I'm not in the Middle East. Let's say I'm just living here in America. And I'm, I believe in Jesus, and um, I've listened to your podcasts, and I embrace this this apocalyptic worldview, and I get like I get the gospel in some kind of basic sense. You know, I'm 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 looking at all this stuff going down in the Middle East. I'm thinking the world might be ending. Whatever. What should I be doing right now? Like, if I I'm actually going to go speak in my church on Sunday, um, I have I have the slot. I'm going to go preach a sermon. I need to. I need to know what to tell these people. What 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 should I be telling people to do right now? Just some 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 random Christian out here in the middle of nowhere in the ocean of Roundup ready soybeans and BT corn, 
<laughs> nice. What exactly can I do? Do I have a mission statement of some kind? Am I contributing to this mission in some meaningful way? Like, what should I be doing? Yeah, the question is, what should we be doing is based on what is God doing? And so the apocalyptic narrative frames that God is patiently waiting to execute divine judgment at the day of God. And Jesus right now is at the right hand of God, patiently waiting to make his enemies his footstool, interceding for the saints to see as many come to repentance as possible. So the so what to all of this is preach Christ crucified and the cross to deliver us from the wrath to come, preach eternal life and the return of Jesus and the resurrection living forever is good news. It's not going to go on like this forever. We're going to have resurrected bodies on a new earth. Mortality is going to be overturned. Resurrection and eternal life is good news. And the means of attaining it and escaping the wrath to come, the cross, the death of Israel's Messiah for our sins, Jew and Gentile alike, to justify us and present us blameless at the coming of the day of God. That is good news. The mercy of God extended to Jew and Gentile alike in light of the hope of the resurrection, the return of Jesus. So the cross, the return of Jesus, and the fullness of the Gentiles. So this age is characterized by divine mercy. God extended mercy to the Jews. Now he's extending mercy to the Gentiles so that he may be glorified for all the coming ages concerning his mercy and loving kindness and long suffering. So we preach the cross, the return of Jesus, and the fullness of the Gentiles in light of the salvation and hope of Israel at the coming of Christ Jesus, the restoration of the kingdom, the resurrection, eternal life on a new earth. And we give ourselves to it in whatever extent that we can. And that's going to primarily play out in changing the narrative within Western churches to a Jewish and apocalyptic narrative that focuses on the blessed hope and and creating a love for his appearing, a love for the return of Jesus and the resurrection and eternal life, and a love for his people. Jesus's people are the Jewish people. He's Jewish. And it's not that he doesn't, he's not the God of the Jews only, He's the God of the Gentiles also, but mm-hmm. we have to change the narrative that over 2,000 years that says God is the God of the Gentiles. Yeah, And we can at least say he's not the God of the Gentiles only. He's also the God of the Jews, right? Yeah, But it's actually the locus of the covenant that we change the narrative. We disciple people into the knowledge of God, which is the scriptures. We disciple them into the knowledge of God, and we seek what God is seeking. And God is seeking the fullness of the Jews and the Gentiles before the day of God comes. We preach Christ crucified and the hope of the return of Jesus, and we remain faithful in it. And there's not a lot you know, more to it other than ordering your life around it. You get up, you settle your heart in the scriptures, you keep reading the Bible, you keep praying, and you keep asking God to help you be a faithful witness and endure to the end, to the day of Christ Jesus. Maranatha. Maranatha. May it may it all happen soon in our days. I'm tired of this. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. And the older you get, the more the more you appreciate the hope of the resurrection. <laughs> oh ab- absolutely. You know, I just don't have any other I have no other hope. Honestly, there's like, what else is there? You, you, we, we long for the resolution of all this conflict and, and Amen. You know, the, the beating of swords into plowshares and all of this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that it boggles my mind that there are people who resist that particular um, message. Who doesn't want to see the, the resolution of conflict and, and peace prevail? I don't know, man. Amen. All right. Well, for for all of our listeners who are fans of the Apocalyptic Gospel Podcast and maybe are disappointed that 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 there's not going to be any future episodes, um, what should they be looking to now? Do you have? Are you writing books? Are you out there somewhere? What? How can people keep in touch with you? Uh, yeah. So I finished uh, my doctoral dissertation about a year and a half ago. It got selected by the American Society of Missiology, which was a great honor for me uh, for their monograph series. And so that's just been published. That's on Amazon now and will be in um, most every theological seminary library. It'll it'll auto auto ship uh, to, to those. But you can get it on Amazon. I apologize; it's it's overpriced, but that's what monograph series. Well, that's do, yeah, so. that's how it goes, and we'll throw a link to that in the description. What, what's the title? 
uh, Extending Mercy to the Gentiles is the title. Oh, that sounds good to me. The Jewish Apocalyptic Trajectory of Pauline Discipleship. So it's a very nerdy title. Oh, I love it. It's not a very interesting read. It's a it's a doctoral dissertation. So if people can get past that, then who are who are you uh, <laughs> who, who are you talking to? I, I that sounds very interesting to me. I, yeah, I guess I don't very, know. Yeah, because you're a nerd. <laughs> yeah, That's right. obvious. This is yeah. Sorry. <laughs> you know. <laughs> me too. It's. Uh, Misery loves company. So, uh, the gospel gospel of Christ crucified is yeah. is uh, in more layman's terms, yeah. and that's on Amazon. Also, great book. Go buy the book. The apocalyptic gospel podcast is still uh, on all the platforms, and I have a limited presence on Twitter. That's about all the social media uh, platform that I can be on, and still you know remain in the Middle East. So, uh, so that's about it. You know, we'll drop some helpful links in the in the description of this podcast. But I'm I'm very happy that you were able to join us today, and, and I think that you know your insights are going to help us to cultivate like a a, a more complete understanding of what's going on in the Middle East right now. Thanks so much for having me. Have have thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us today on Messiah Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about the Jewish Jesus, check out First Fruits of Zion at ffoz.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating wherever you're listening. Messiah Podcast is made possible by the generosity of our First Fruits of Zion friends. FFOZ friends are people like you who support our mission and get loads of exclusive Bible commentary, teaching, and content. You can join today at ffoz.org. Tune in next time for more great conversations. Until then, I'm Jacob Franze. Shalom. Let his word cover you and me. Like the waters cover the sea. Let his love cover you and me. Like the waters cover the sea